don't touch that dial because this is episode 74 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, and only the shadow knows. So hello and welcome to the show. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And this is episode 74 of The Film File. The continuing adventures of Lee and Andy in the world of film. How have you been, Andy? Lee and Andy. It sounds like we're just one unit. We uh, are the Lee and Andy unit. The Titanic. <laughs> Lee and Andy DiCaprio. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I don't know about you, but I'm tired a lot. <laughs> Shattered tonight. I'm, I'm recording this. I've had a long day. It's beautiful weather out there. And uh, I, there's not often I'm thinking it feels like a chore. Just coming upstairs yeah. and recording. Now we started, I'm fine, but we're thinking about it and going, yeah, I've got to get ready, do the film file, got to get my got to get my guns on. I'm all right now we've started, <laughs> but before I was getting it, I was, it was, I was finding it difficult. Yeah, it's hot, sweaty nights, isn't it? And then um, I'm to sleep with a window yeah. open, so every noise you hear outside wakes you up, blah-de-blah-de-blah. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Same for everybody. It's also weird at the moment, because with me being back at work full-time and you know putting as many hours in as I can, on me days off, now that we're out of like a, a, a full lockdown, there's still some restrictions in place which are going to last for another month. I think they should do because we don't want to rush things. But even though I can go to a pub, I can meet up with mates, I can do all this, I can do all that. What do I do on me days off? I sit at home and I watch films <laughs> or play video games. Basically, basically what I did for yeah, the whole lockdown year. lockdown life, isn't it? <laughs> lockdown yeah, life has now, become real life. But now it doesn't feel like a chore anymore. It feels like it's it's... It's a choice. It's something to enjoy. It's... I choose to do this. And that makes it so much different because when we legally had to stay at home, even staying at home playing games and things like that, which I normally enjoy, felt like I was getting forced to do it. At least now, if I want to spend my whole days lying on the couch in my pajamas, watching films that I've seen 20 times over, Scott Pilgrim, I'm looking at you, I'm going to do it and I'm going to enjoy it. And I have done today. That's all that I've done today. We won't judge you much um hey andy i am do you know that it is 40 years since raiders of the lost ark came out 40 years oh now you make me feel really old i know i mean that was the beginning of uh well that was uh um let me think was it pre or post et it was uh pre pre et it was uh, uh, wow! It was one of those nineteen eighty one. Nineteen eighty one, yeah. Um, and now we're we're almost coming back full circle with the production of the new Indiana Jones film. But where did you first see Raiders of the Lost Ark? It was on the ABC Cinema in Saint Helens, back home, just on the outskirts of Prescott, which is my hometown. Uh, my mum took us to go and see it, and. I absolutely love it. I just have the vivid memories of all the key action moments in the film, and I've loved the franchise ever since, all three of the films. My mum and dad saw it before me and came back and said, you've got to go and see this film. For some reason, I don't know. I don't I don't know if it had landed for me, uh, which is strange, but I remember my mum and dad seeing it. I took my kid sister. We went to the ABC in Sheffield, the now defunct ABC in Sheffield, which was a grand old cinema. Uh, and absolutely loved it, and then I was hooked, absolutely hooked. And I don't know why I I was reticent to go. I'm I'm really, really surprised. Mm. I don't know what made me uh, wait so long, but 
that was back in the day when a film run would go on for a good few weeks. And then what you'd get is you get films coming back, uh, having, yep. a, having a re-release because there was no, uh, well, there was little in the way of, of home release. You had to wait months yep. for a video release. So sometimes you get the film coming back again and having a, yeah, having a re-release. Particularly with anything that Spielberg was involved with over the early 80s, because even when the VHS boom started, he refused to have any of his films released on VHS because he wanted them to get reissued every summer to catch the summer blockbuster crowd again. Right. I remember um, there was a big hoo-ha over E.T. not getting put onto home release for a good six years oh, right. after it that. got released because Spielberg insisted that he wanted to just keep bringing it back to the big screen. Um, that that was that was during that time when you know when cinema was dying uh, because VHS had come along and so everyone yeah. said it's the death of cinema. Well, it's uh, the death of cinema again, isn't way. it? Yeah, we know. It's, it's, <laughs> we're going to be talking about that later. So in this week's show, we will be talking about our review of Nobody, and of course, we'll have the news. Other reviews include. I'll also be looking at Awake, which landed on Netflix, Kajillionaire, which was something that came out last year that landed on Amazon this week, and we'll also have a discussion around Loki. We'll be doing our deep dive this week into Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. But before that, of course, Andy's been snooping, but enough of that. He's also been looking around <laughs> the internet to find you all the gossip, the juicy word on the street. The castings, the miscastings, the direction, the failures, the flops, the successes that we call in this particular item simply the news. So where are you going to start with this week, Andy? What is your hot news item? Well, let's just start with a common theme that we're doing every start of the news. And, it's you know, with cinemas reopened worldwide, obviously all attention is on how things are performing. And In the Heights opened in the US this weekend projecting before its release a 20 million opening weekend but finishing on a 13 million and as you can expect all the press even the serious ones who should know better have turned negative on the bomb that the film is and how it shows that nobody wants to return to cinemas this is after the week when we've already discussed how well quiet place do has done and how well cruella has done and the success of kong versus godzilla yeah, it appears that even the respected press are kind of forgetting quite a few key facts with regards in the Heights. Yes, the distributor might have thought this is going to be a 20 million opening weekend. Never listen to the distributor. They overestimate. If you take, for example, in recent years, Greatest Showman, that opened with only an $8 million US box office on its initial three days and yet finished $174 million domestically. That's quite a growth over time, not a decrease. And everyone kind of forgets that musicals never impact at the start because they're not, they, they are very niche. As much as people go to watch musicals live, they go to watch stage shows, etc. When it comes to the cinema, there's still a niche kind of audience. And most people initially are kind of put off by them. But when someone then says to them, I've been to see it, give it a shot, go check it out. That's when people go to see it. They benefit from word of mouth. I was about to say exactly that. They are a word of mouth genre. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do, as Andy said, is check out um, Greatest Showman, which got withering reviews, uh, an initial low release, box office wise, but found an audience internationally by word of mouth, by the strength of the songs, by the fact that there was an audience out there. But uh, as you said, there's some trepidation with musicals. Now, I think West Side Story might be the thing that will book that trend because it's such a 
such a highly regarded piece of uh, IP. But any new musical has got to find its feet. And if you don't know the songs, and we are living now in a generation where you get your jukebox musical movies, your, your Mama Mia's, yeah. where everybody already knows the soundtrack and can go in for a good sing-along. But if you remember, you know, going right back, the Rocky Horror Show wasn't a big success mm. at the cinema. So um, I think it's a unique genre that has to find its feet, especially more so these days than ever. Yeah, um, arguments initially came out saying that the HBO Max release at the same time probably stole the audience, but that was debunked by the end of the weekend when it showed that it hasn't really had a strong opening on that service anyway. So even though people who are subscribing to HBO Max can see it for free, they're not watching it. Why? Because it's a musical and it needs the word of mouth. Andy, also, is it a good film? Well, we'll talk about it next week. I've had a chance to see it, but I want to give you a chance to see it okay. uh, before we discuss it. And I'll I'll just say at this point in time, I went in not expecting to get anything from it, and I came away singing song tunes in my head. Okay. That's all that I'm going to say on it at this point in time. Well, I mean, if that was a spoiler for next week, that was a <laughs> hell of a spoiler. No clues given in this portion of the programme, folks. What else have you got for us? We love Kevin Bacon. We do. We love everything he does. Even when he's in like really low budget fare, we enjoy what he gives to him. And so this is the only moment that has made me excited in the reboot of Troma's Toxic Avenger series. It's to star Peter Dinklage as the Toxic yeah. Avenger. Peter Dinklage will play the everyman who falls into a vat of toxic waste and mutates into the heroic underdog who fights corporate for fraud and greed and corruption in his community. And Kevin Bacon has been cast as what's been described as a slimy villain. Because who's going to play that role better than Kevin Bacon? Our Kev has made me want to see this film. Up until this point, I wasn't bothered. <laughs> Anything else? One film that I am more excited about, and I was excited when this news dropped literally over the past couple of days, was that Greenland, which was a film that came as a surprise to many people, you were already sold on the idea from the trailer. I yeah. remember we discussed this one. We did. We discussed it when we reviewed it. I saw the trailer. And I, I was sat with you and you went, mm, looks like the same old nonsense. And I said, no, I think there's something in this. I actually quite like the look of it. Uh, and then we both we both enjoyed it when we saw it. In fact, uh, I watched it with the missus and, and she too thought it was a, a great film. She thought it was absolutely engrossing. The family aspect is what, what made yeah. this film the payoff for her, not necessarily the spectacle. And it is a very slight story on a, on a big canvas, but... I'm reticent to think, does it need a sequel? I mean, I think the film ended where it should have ended. I know we, we had a little bit of a chat pre-recording that you said, once they open those doors, do we get to explore the world? So, um, yes, there, I can see where the story can go. But for me, it felt pretty self-contained. But it just proves how well it did. I see it in a similar vein to what I saw, A Quiet Place, because when A Quiet Place came out and I saw that I thought oh I hope they don't do a sequel to this because that feels like a perfect film we don't need to see more but then we saw Quiet Place 2 and saw how they just basically grew the story out a bit as we explored more of the world and I think with Greenland we've got a similar kind of situation that that film basically finishes with the underground bunkers doors opening to this whole new world post decimation and I'm curious as to what's happened to the world. Were there any survivors out there and how are they surviving and what is going on on the planet so I think it it has the opportunity to be something different whilst continuing the story. The good news is that Gerard Butler and Marina Baccarin are both back, as is Rick Roman Wow, who was the director, and Chris Sparling, 
who was the writer. So all the creative force is back with it. So hopefully we will get to see something that resonates, like I said, like Quiet Place 2 did, and continues the journey, picking up from the end of the last one, presenting us a different worldview. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? We we try very hard on this programme not to speculate before we've seen it. We We might not like the idea, but until it comes out, until we're sat in a cinema or at home watching it, then we make our decision. What else do you have news-wise? I have more sci-fi news. Garth Davis's Foe, an adaptation of author Ian Reid's novel I'm Thinking of Ending Things, is getting adapted to film. And Saoirse Ronan from Lady Bird, Lakeith Stanfield, who we've mentioned quite a few times on this show, for um, he was recently in Judas and the Black Messiah, as well as newcomer Paul Mesker, are all set to star. The sci-fi tale is set in a near future where corporate power and environmental decay have ravaged the planet. Oh, this is that's set next week then? Yeah, this this it was last Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Michael and Ronan are a couple living isolated in a farm way away from society. But when a stranger, Stanfield, knocks on their door one night, they receive news that throws their lives into turmoil. The husband has been randomly selected to travel to an experimental orbiting station for two years. However, arrangements have already been made so that when he leaves, his wife won't miss him because a biomechanical duplicate of him will be left behind. Intriguing sci-fi, mm. post-apocalyptical, there's that word again, post-apocalyptical. I'm glad you said it, not me. <laughs> setting makes me interested. And Garth Davis is a name that I kind of gravitate around as well. I've got a bit of news. What have you got for us? I've got that Zoe Kravitz, daughter of Lenny, is directing Channon Tatum in a new thriller called, cover the kids' ears, Pussy Island. I don't know much about it other than the title. The title alone is pretty intriguing. And just kind of realise we've not seen much of Channing Tatum over the last uh, couple of years. Yeah, Chate seems to have um, disappeared by the wayside after the Jump Street films came and went. There was so much talk of him being the next big thing, but then he just kind of drifted. Yeah. I can't even think of anything that he's been in recently. He was scheduled, wasn't he, for Fox's Gambit X-Men spin-off movie. Uh, he was, he was yeah. the of that, which, of course, uh, uh, never went anywhere, thankfully. Uh, we've been <laughs> talking about Knives Out for the last few weeks with the ever-growing cast. Well, the cast has grown by one more. Knives Out 2 has added Jessica U. Lee Henwick. Who's Jessica U. Lee Henwick? Well, she's also in the cast of the new Matrix film. She was uh, seen in... Iron Fist, the TV series, and she was the female lead in Love and Monsters. So highly recognisable uh, young actor and next to be seen in Knives Out 2. Yep, that pops her alongside, as we've mentioned before, Daniel Craig, Dave Bautista, Janelle Monet, Edward Norton, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Kate Hudson and Madeline Klein. Uh, and despite what social media is buzzing about at the moment. No, Rowan Atkinson has not been cast. It was someone's idea of a joke to post a fake report out there, and you've all fallen for it. Please stop falling for fake news. <laughs> hey, just while I, I, just going back to something that you said right at the top end of the news, I just did a little bit of research. A Quiet Place 2 roars to $100 million in the Ooh. States. So that just uh, on the back end of the story you mentioned a little bit earlier. Yeah, which shows that people are going to the cinema. They're just not going for a musical. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's done great business, Quiet Place 2. It's outperformed the first film already. It's, it's a no-brainer that they're making a Quiet Place 3 and also a spin-off franchise. So more to come. One, one bit of news that broke literally after we went to air last week, which we've already kind of discussed and we've both got different points of view on, is the new adaptation of Stephen King's Christine for Blumhouse being put together by Brian Fuller, who is not only writing it, 
but he's going to direct his first feature film because he's normally known for TV. Now, I'll let you <laughs> share your thoughts on it first. <laughs> okay, my thoughts are, I don't think that Christine, based on the Stephen King book, uh, originally directed by John Carpenter, needs a remake. While Firestarter, that we also mentioned last week, needs uh, a remake because it was an incomplete yeah. film. Now, for those who've not seen uh, John Carpenter's take on Christine, it's the story of a of a, a boy and a haunted car, a Plymouth Fury, in fact, which is an absolutely beautiful piece of 1950s structure. Now, you're going to argue, Andy, I'm pretty sure, that a lot of the book was not included in John Carpenter's take on it, and I absolutely agree. But I just think it's one of those that it was a pretty good Stephen King movie. And so does it need a remake? And I just happened to drift to Pet Cemetery when we when we talk about this. I, I agree with you that John Carpenter's 1983 film is one of the best Stephen King films to date. A very memorable film, really good use of effects work, really great direction. And, you know, the scenes such as the regeneration of the car show me showcase a simple but amazingly effective effect that John Carpenter was brilliant at bringing to screen. But... As you've already said, there are a lot of things from the book that are missing. In the film, it's more or less hinted that the car was always possessed right from the production line. However, in the book, it's the spirit of the previous owner who is corrupting the souls of anyone who dares to drive it and slowly takes over their personalities. And I think that there's room to explore that different themes. And I'm a, I'm a fan of Brian Fuller. I like how he adapts things. American Gods, I think he adapted well for that one season that he was involved in. Uh, Star Trek Discovery, for those five episodes that he was involved in, how I loved, loved what he was doing. Pushing Daisies, until he got cancelled, one of the best shows ever made. Dead Like Me, for that first season while he was involved with it. It was absolutely brilliant and really cutting edge. I must be honest. And then we get the thing which I think is the best example. Now, people have said that there's perfect Hannibal Lecter films out there. There's, uh, you can either be a fan of Brian Cox in Manhunter or you can love Anthony Hopkins. And when Hannibal was pitched for a TV series, people said exactly the same. What's the point in remake, redoing a Hannibal story when we've already got a perfect one out there? And then Brian Fuller gave us possibly the best TV series of the past decade in Hannibal. So I'm hoping that he will bring some of that. I can do this differently and not step on the toes of the previous incarnations. I will do my own version of it and adapt the more spiritual essence because he's very good at those visualizations of like darker elements and little flashes of strange imagery. This is what I'm hoping to see from it. However, I am aware that Brian Fuller is notorious for getting attached to projects, scripting things, getting ready to shoot, and then he gets thrown off and it all goes into limbo. So I'm holding my breath at this point in time. But as a big fan of what Fuller's done to date, I'm very much intrigued. Yeah, we've always got room for a good Stephen King remake. And, and I've, to be honest, and I, I know we've mentioned this, but we know that uh, Gary Doberman is is helming a big screen adaptation of Salem's Lot, which yeah. is a, an epic vampire tale. Uh, uh, the TV version was um, fantastic for its time, a little bit dated now, but still has some thrills. And I think Salem's Lot, no matter how good the series was, is is ripe for a remake. So, you know, it's that thing. Yeah. When it comes out and it feels right, then we'll then we'll watch it and we'll know. Now, sticking kind of with King, and we're going to move across to talk about Joe Hill, King's son, and his short action horror story, Abraham's Boys, is set to move to the big screen with lucky writer Natasha Kamani penning the script. Have you read 
his short story? I haven't, no. It's one of his about 22 page. It's really genuinely a short story. And it's kind of a sequel to Bram Stoker's Dracula, which focuses on Van Helsing's sons, Max and Rudy, who have never understood why their father is so overprotective because they know nothing of his past. But Abraham is becoming a bit more unhinged in his older years and very paranoid and violent. And it opens up their eyes to what horrors he encountered. Uh, the story had been adapted to into a short 16-minute film back in 2009, but it's going to be expanded out from that base tale for a whole new feature version that will explore more into the aftermath of if you've been spending your life hunting demons and monsters and vampires, how is that going to impact on your family life? Intriguing. Mm, I like the sound of that one. Uh, a little bit of casting news for you. Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, who's currently to be seen in Apple TV's uh, Lisa's story, is starring in Todd Haynes's May-December. Juliana Moore has found a reliable collaborator in uh, writer-director Todd Haynes before. So interesting. Good to see those two actors working together. Other bit of casting. Now, this casting has been kind of attached to this project for quite a while, but nothing's ever moved forward with it. But finally, the long-mooted revival of Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe which will feature Liam Neeson in the lead role, mm, is gaining some traction again. Uh, the character's been played by a few different faces over the decades, most memorably Humphrey Bogart in The Big Sleep. But the new project has new producers on board, and Neil Jordan, who gave us Interview with a Vampire, Byzantium and Greta, are, is set to direct, with shooting planned to start in October. So it's finally, it's finally going ahead. The film's going to adapt the black-eyed blonde, which saw Marlowe as restless and as lonely as ever when a blonde heiress asks him to find her ex-lover. Marlowe is then drawn into a bigger mystery that puts him in danger. I'm liking this. I, I think that, you know, we've had enough of Liam Neeson just going around punching things. As, as good as he is at doing it, it'd be nice to see him playing a more detective kind of story. And Chandler's Philip Marlowe is a great character. I hope, um, as you say, that it is a period piece because I think Marlowe works better. I mean, there have been some yeah. memorable versions of it. Uh, James Garner played an interesting Marlowe. Elliot Gould was a fantastic Marlowe in The Long mm. Goodbye, one of my all-time favourite movies. And there was a pretty good TV series with Powers Booth playing Marlowe. So I'm always always open to a new Marlowe film. Uh, I'm very interested to see how Liam Neeson's take on it. I, he came close, actually, to playing a Marlowe-esque character uh, in the one, uh, one of Liam Neeson's best films, A Walk Amongst the Tombstones, which is a brilliant sort of 70s vibe PI detective movie. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Probably, for me, the best thing that Liam Neeson's ever done. And another private eye will be getting to the screen again with a reboot of Fletch. Uh, Greg Matola has confirmed that it's finally happening. John Hamm is definitely going to be in the lead role as Maurice Fletcher. Shooting is due to start this month. And the film is going to be titled Confess Fletch, which will draw from the second of the novels from Gregory MacDonald, where Fletch finds himself in the middle of multiple murders and is the prime suspect in one, whilst tasked with finding his fiancée's stolen art collection. It's been decades since we last saw the Fletch character on screen in those the, the, the great double bill of um, Fletch and Fletch Lives with Chevy Chase. Will John Hamm match up to Chevy Chase in the role? I don't know, but I do have a soft spot for Ham. I have, I know you do. I've, I've seen your sandwiches. Um, <laughs> boom. Boom. I had to <laughs> drop it in, folks. Sorry. I, I'm a big fan of the Fletch books. There have been so many mooted uh, reboots, remakes, sequels, prequels to, to Fletch for, for since Chevy Chase hung up the uh, the false teeth in the wig. But it, it's, a, it's such a light character and you need someone of a light touch. There was a, a, a muted Kevin Smith version with uh, Jason Lee 
to start I was, it was my kind of perfect fletch yeah a young fletch because of, of the comedic value so john ham we know can do comedy we know can do uh, a grizzled private eye and, and grizzled cop so we'll wait and see as ever it's be good to get fletch back on the big screen and it'll be interesting to see what take they go with and greg motola is a pretty decent uh comedy with heart kind of director he gave us things like adventureland and Superbad and paul so you know i'm quite digging his approach that he could take for this film yeah one set of directors who allegedly do comedy that i'm not sure that i cared about their approach are the family brothers are they still going haven't they done anything for years well they've, they've kind of been trying to it wasn't one of the last what was one of the last things that they did was it that dreadful movie 43? I, I think they were involved in that, as was James Gunn, in all they honesty. They were involved in that. <laughs> they did They did the uh, Three Stooges movie. Um, I've sort of lost track. Uh, I'm not a great fan of that kind of humour. And I know what's coming, so I'm I'm not really a big fan of this upcoming news story. Uh, yeah, so the 1996 bowling comedy that saw Woody Harrelson as Roy Munson, whose hand injury prevented him from competing in 10-pin bowling, but he discovers in later years an Amish bowling phenomenon called Ishmael, played by Randy Craig, and begins his return to the sport, Kingpin. Now, when this film came out, I remember everyone going nuts about it. And I watched it and just thought, what was that? The only thing that stood out in the whole film was Bill Murray, who had an excellent turn as like one of the bowlers with quite a lot of quirky personalities, like Bill Murray tends to bring to everything. <laughs> and it made it made the film just about watchable. Well, they've announced that they're set to produce a sequel to that film because everyone's clearly been asking for it. It's it's been it's been the top of any lockdown list, I'm pretty sure, because uh, anybody over a certain age group <laughs> uh, will remember it and everyone below that age, certain age group doesn't give a monkeys. Now, it's worth noting there's no script at, at the moment. There's no cast attached. It, was the one in the first place, I asked myself? Probably not. I, I've got a genuine suspicion that this is one of them where the family brothers have just thrown it out as a potential idea to see what the traction is online. And sadly, the traction seems to be, oh, wow, I hope this happens, which means that we might get the suffering of Kingpin 2. If you're a fan of Kingpin out there and you're listening to this and you're thinking, what are you guys talking about? By all means, email us in. We'll give you the email address later. Let us know what you think is good about Kingpin. We'd love to hear it and we'd love to be proven wrong. <laughs> but from our point of view, this doesn't need to be sequelized at all. Because the world of cinema and especially Netflix, Prime and Disney Plus are getting smaller, there is the Beauty and the Beast prequel series has been greenlit for Disney Plus and it joins a long line of Disney spending all the money <laughs> on Disney Plus projects at the moment. Yeah, uh, and over for DC, HBO Max have got the exclusive on the Blue Beetle movie, which will be directed by Angel Manuel Soto. We spoke about this film when it got announced, but it's now definitely not going to be a big screen release. It's going straight to HBO Max, uh, and it will focus on the Jamie Rees version of the character uh, who finds a Blue Beetle scarab that grafts itself to his spine and gives him a powerful suit of armor that enhances his abilities, provides weapons for him, and he becomes a superhero. And also on the DC News, Aquaman sequel finally has a title, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. And the shots that have been released so far, it does look a lot darker than the first film, but we were kind of expecting that because we were told it was going to delve more into the, the horror of the undersea world kind of territory. Um, there's also been a bit of news around the Flash movie with some uh, nicely revealed little shots of the Flash's new costume. And there's also landed in the last couple of minutes while we've been on air uh, a promo art 
reveal for Thor Love and Thunder, which shows Thor in his new garb and, yes, Jane's mighty Thor armour as well. So we're starting to get some hints of how that movie is going to look. Warner Brothers and New Line are planning an animated feature which is going to be set before the events of Lord of the Rings called The War of the Rohirrim, which will focus on the legendary figure of Helm Hammerhand, who was the ninth king of Rohan, and for whom Helm's Deep Fortress, from the second film, the second book, or whatever part of Tolkien lore you want to adapt it from, um, is named. Voice casting's underway, and animation direction is going to be handled by Kenji Kamiyama, who was involved in Akira, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. So, good hands for the art direction. And it's going to be from a script by Jeffrey Addis and Will Matthews, who gave us Dark Crystal Age of Resistance on Netflix. Well written. Fantastic series. Sadly cancelled. And yet, I'm still not interested in anything to do with Lord of the Rings. Oh, I know. Sacrilege. I hold but... my Hobbit fear back up yeah. at <laughs> <laughs> And uh, anything else there, Andy, before we... Um... We give you the sad news of the week. Is that That's it? That's basically everything from the lines of what's going into into production and what's casting. So, uh, as Andy said at the top end, there's some sad news this week. Oscar-nominated actor Ned Beatty has passed away aged 83. Uh, following on the heels of the death of the great Charles Grodin last month, we have another classic actor whose who's demise will be will be felt to all movie fans. Of course, mostly recognisable to, to genre fans. On playing Otis, Lex Luthor's uh, rather mentally challenged sidekick in Superman the movie and returned for some of uh, Superman 2. But probably outside of that, in probably one of the most cinematic and quotable lines of all time, he played the role of Bobby Tripp in John Borman's uh, amazing, still to this day, and classic hard-hitting uh, deliverance. Mm. Uh, he also had roles in films such as Network, All the President's Men, and much, yeah, much more. Yeah, which was Oscar-nominated for, if I remember. Yeah. Um, over the decades, almost 50-year film career with a plethora of great roles. He's also be, been known for voice acting in recent years. He played hug, the very huggable Lotso Burr in Toy Story 3. And he was also in Rango as Tortoise John. Uh, so he's, he's captured the hearts and attentions of people of all ages, basically. And he's also had quite a prominent guest star appearances on TV throughout the decades, including an ongoing role in the 90s series Homicide Life on the Streets. I didn't know that. I remember him in uh, It's Gary Shandling's show. I remember him in MASH. Yep, he cropped up on pretty much, if you name any detective or police procedural drama of the 70s and 80s, he was in at least one episode because he'd pop up quite prominently on the TV circuit. Marvellous actor. Someone who you recognise the face of in everything that he was in. And like you say, most of us were introduced to him through his role as Otis. And that was how I was introduced to him. And then in the later years when I discovered all his wealth of work that he'd worked on elsewhere. Sad loss. Yeah, sad loss indeed. And uh, um, as a tribute, you should really watch something with the late, great Ned Beatty and just to remind yourself how great an actor he was. And that's the news. Are you enjoying the show so far? Are you a fan and you've not subscribed? Then do so quickly before we turn into another Greenland. Hit that subscription button or you may get the prequel you never wanted. <laughs> to do so, all you have to do is go to your favourite podcast platform, hit the subscription button and you will get the show delivered handily into your ears every week. If you want to get in touch with us or know more about the show, you can do so by simply popping over to Twitter and following us at Filmfile UK. You can head over to Instagram and see pictures of us, Filmfile UK, 
or you can email us with anything, your love of films, your hatred of films, what films we should watch, why we're wrong about Kingpin from the Farrelly Brothers, podcast at filmfile.uk. We weren't, we weren't, Andy, we weren't. <laughs> That's podcast at filmfile.uk. I, I thoroughly hope someone emails in to just say, you're wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That one person. Yeah, you know, you're all allowed an opinion. It'll be what, Just because we've got our own handy-dandy podcast doesn't mean that we're always right. It'll be one of the family brothers email us. <laughs> yeah. The other one will email to say you're right. <laughs> so as you know, dear listeners, every week we are doing a deep dive into some classic films. This week we're picking for you. So put on your headphones, get out a beer can, and listen along to our deep dive into Dazed and Confused, a 1993 American coming-of-age comedy written and directed by Richard Linklater and starring a cast of, well, just about anybody who was at that point up and coming in Hollywood. So you're not going to go to law school? What do you want to do then? I want to dance. You going to be quarterback next year? I don't know, I might not even play. You're in need of a serious attitude adjustment, young man. Super dominant man in a 50s greaser uniform. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> the 50s were boring, the 60s rock, the 70s, oh my God, they obviously suck. Dazed and confused. See it with a bud. Behind every good man, there's a woman. And that woman was Martha Washington, man. And every day George would come home, she'd have a big, fat bowl waiting for him, man, when he'd come in the door, man. She was a hip, a hip, hip lady, man. Before I talk about my great love of Dazed and Confused, uh, which I'm not sure uh, what Andy's take's going to be, just to just to point out again, going back to to what Andy said at the beginning of the news, because this film was a commercial disappointment at the box office. It grossed less than eight million in the US. Didn't really find much of an audience outside of the US because, well, it's it's a very American centric movie. But despite all that, this film has enjoyed a critical and commercial success over the years. It's one of those films that, because of word of mouth, that has led this film to become a cult film. In fact. It ranked third on Entertainment Weekly's magazine list of the 50 best high school movies of all time uh, and 10th of the funniest films of the past 25 years. So, you know, some films just have to find an audience. Anyway, if you don't know much about Days and Confused, don't be surprised because, as I said, it wasn't a big box office take and it certainly didn't find much of a crowd in this country. But the plot, such as it is, follows different groups of Texas teenagers during their last day of school in 1976. 1976, when all the teenagers, according to this movie, wanted to either grab a beer, get stoned, and listen to some very loud rock and roll. This film is, is the kind of film that attracts me. It's those rambling narratives with multiple characters that is a little bit plotless, that somehow ties itself together quite beautifully by some fantastic performances, which include actors like Jason London, uh, a very young Ben Affleck, Mila Jonovich, uh, Cole Hauser, Parker Posey, Adam Greenberg, uh, Nicky Cat, Joey Lauren Adams, Rory Cochran, and in his first film debut, Matthew McConaughey, in a, in a role that sort of 
well, defined him to this very, very day. Andy, tell me about your love, hopefully, for Dazed and Confused. When this was recommended as one to watch, I commented, I've never seen this film. So this will be a first time watch for me. And so watching a film that is so beloved to someone else from a few decades ago, with fresh new eyes in this day and age, I was worried that maybe it'll feel dated. But one of the joys of this film is that it's set in the 70s. It was released in the 90s. So it was always set in a time period outside the time when it was released. So it doesn't feel dated. It hasn't dated at all. In fact, you've said that it wasn't well received, particularly in the UK back then, because no one could appreciate the the American sentimentalities, the last day of high school kind of approach and the kegger parties. But I think in this day and age, a film like this would work a lot better because we have been raised over the past three decades on a plethora of films which are focused on this, including the very popular American Pie films. We now know in the UK what American culture at that age is all about. And watching this film, I got it straight away. I got the mix of characters. I got the, the the hazing that was going on, which hazing is a term that three decades ago, people in the UK would go, huh, what's that? We don't understand all that thing, but we do now. And I was straight away captured by all the mix of characters telling all their own stories and focuses on their last day from the college jock who we focus on at the start of it, Randall Floyd, who's kind of the main lead character who's asked to sign his pledge by his coach to not drink and not take drugs. And he's contemplating whether he actually wants to still play as a star player for the team. And Mitch Kramer, the freshman undergoing the hazing from Affleck's character, who Floyd then takes under his wing. And Mitch Kramer was my in on this in this film. He was the right. he was the side character. He was the, 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 the outsider who wants to fit in, but he's getting jumped by all the cooler kids. And he's getting drawn into this world. And it was easy for me to get drawn along with him. And like you say, the cast, watching this film now and recognising so many faces pop up, they're like, there's Anthony Rapp. There's there's Renny Zellweger, Parker Posey. Everyone in there has gone on to other things and become memorable either on TV or film. And it was so easy to just straight away see them. And McConaughey, in his first role, like you say, he sets the template for everything that he's known for from that point onwards. He's even gotten all right, all right, all right moment in there. Every All his tics and his expressions and his approaches to characters are all within. His bully of a character within here. But he's not a bully in the nasty, I'm over the top kind of way. He's actually casual about it. And that's what makes him kind of a, a, a character you like to hate to like. <laughs> it, I, I totally agree. I think it's... Um... I think it's one of those films, and, and, and I'm drawn to this uh, purely independent film that has big intentions. I like uh, films with very little plot, which are, which are dialogue and character driven, very much a, along the lines of a lot of Richard yeah. Linklater's films. This was his second film after Slacker, and it has a real sort of freewheeling quality to it. Uh, I've always been a big fan of uh, uh, Diner by Barry Levinson, which is, again, is that sort of freewheeling sort of film based around some central characters. I got it and liked it. I saw it the first time in the States on a, on a gadget known as a laser disc <laughs> uh, that I was staying with a friend and he had it. And he said, you must watch this. And, and I watched it and loved it. And he said, that's my life. He said, that was my last day of school. I'm one of those characters. Uh, and funny enough, I'm, when they released it in the UK, I watched it with a, a group of British friends who were a lot more cynical about it, going, yeah, it's just kind of filmmaking, Hollywoody type last day of school. And I'm going, no, 
my pal told me this was <laughs> this is what it was actually like. He re- completely related to it. So I think you actually, you know, you've hit the nail on the head that it may be now be a lot easier to sort of understand uh, and, and tie into some of those uh, those sort of cultish bits of tribalism that run through it. It's a very easygoing film. The, the pace runs at its own pace. It's got a fantastic soundtrack, which yeah. include uh, ZZ Top, Alice Cooper, of course, with Schools Out, Kiss, uh, Black Sabbath, everything except Led Zeppelin because they wouldn't uh, give them the rights to Days and Confused. But it's just a simply uh, uh, a very easygoing affair. And Matthew McConaughey, as you say, makes such a... Such an impact, and and his role grew because he was a, a pal of somebody who got introduced to Richard Linklater, came along, and they saw that they they saw the star quality in him, uh, and a bit like American Graffiti, it's one of those sort of socially responsible and totally irresistible movies. Yep, uh, the mix of characters in it keeps it interesting, and the comedy is light and well placed. Uh, there's some stoner moments scattered within there, but I think it's just got, it just had a charm that just kept me going through it. And like you say, that this kind of a like slice of life kind of filmmaking that Linklater has been known for throughout his career, it's interesting to see how so early on in his career he kind of perfected he perfected how he would approach everything going forwards. He would be focused not on an overall plot line, not an overall like we start here, we end there, but just like I'm taking this chunk of these personalities and I'm going to present them. And I love that. I mean, we had similar when we saw, when we t- spoke about Nashville, all those, all those yeah, weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, very much so. The altman Where it was just individual stories mixed in and how everyone interacted with each other. And that's what makes this work. And I quite, like you, I like this kind of filmmaking. I like this kind of, don't tell me a full plot line. Just give me someone who I can latch onto and see how they interact. Marvelous stuff. I I was expect like I said I was expecting to be a bit disappointed and to f- make think uh, I don't know why Lee doesn't get I don't know why Lee gets this and he raves on about it. But I'm going to be going back and revisiting this because I really enjoyed it and I think on me next time round I'll enjoy it even more. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just to sort of add, I mean, talking about sort of the the the, the flow of the plot, it is it does feel like a slice of life where the the stakes when you're a teenager are really low. You know, how do you get off with a girl uh, that you don't you don't speak to? How do you get how do you get tickets for a gig? Most teenage comedies have usually got, you know, kid from the wrong side of tracks, a girlfriend from the wrong side of tracks, a girlfriend gets pregnant, that kind of thing. Somebody has to die. It's not that it's mm-hmm. just it's just a, a, a such an easygoing, low key movie that I absolutely, absolutely adore. I mean, I love that style of movie. It has some genuinely classic moments and it's some great dialogue some great music and um some some moments which are absolutely laugh out loud funny uh, a beautiful film if you've not had the chance to see it that's richard Linklater's dazed and confused we'll be back next week with another deep dive andy and i have been to the cinema to see one of the films that we'll be reviewing on our list but before that andy's got a few of the films that he's seen without me how dare he <laughs> Uh, to talk about. Andy Walks comes up first. One that I mentioned last week as dropping on Netflix was Awake, and the concept was a solid one. It made me interested. Mysterious events knocks out all power with an EMP pulse, and also knocks out the ability to sleep from humans. And pretty swiftly, society started to crumble, as lack of sleep pushes people's minds into insanity. One woman seeks to get her family to safety, including her daughter, who appears to be the only person who can actually sleep. 
Does her daughter hold the key to the potential cure? And can the family survive as society destroys itself around them? Sounds good, doesn't it? I'm I'm taken by it. I think it sounds a great concept. Reminds me a little bit of a Julianna Moore film, uh, Blindness, but I think you're not going to give me the result that I'm I'm expecting from that that nice uh, talk. No, sadly it isn't. The film is very flat in presentation. Even moments that should contain peril feel very inconsequential. And the rapid fall of humanity is far too rapid. I initially wondered if we'd seen events which had played out over a few weeks, but at a late point in the film, someone mentions six days in time period. And when I backtracked, that meant that people switched to rioting and looting after just one night of not being able to sleep. And that straight away just made me go, they've not even thought about this, have they? The reason why her daughter can sleep when revealed, in case it's not immediately apparent very early on in the film, only serves to lead to questions of why there aren't many more people who also sleep. Seriously, I won't spoil it, but it's extremely weak and signposted heavily. Some potentially horrific themes are played out. People who are critically injured and close to death, if you've been shot and you're lying bleeding to death, your body won't shut down, so you're forced to witness all your final moments and feel it as your body's starting to shut down piece by piece. Oh, but the dull tone made it feel, eh, oh well, that's happened. The film was instantly forgettable. As soon as it finished, all there was a word of is that I'd wasted time watching it. Such a shame because there's so many good concepts within here, but it's so, just played so poorly. I think I'll nap on that one and, and give it a miss. See what I did I there. I saw what you did there. That was good. <laughs> so Wish Dragon popped up on Netflix this week and I put it on expecting very little from it, but actually found it was quite a delightful animated film, which would make quite a good family watch. Dragon thingy, you in there? Greetings, great master. Oh, a peasant boy. How long have you been in that teapot? I don't know. Is it still the Qing Dynasty? Ooh. How did you get in there, little man? Television. Car. Ice cream. Shrimp. Chips. Peasant food, no doubt. <laughs> Magnificent. <laughs> Uh, the simple story is that teenage Din longs to reunite with his childhood friend, but she's become a huge star since her father took her away from the slums. However, when Din finds a magic urn which contains a wish dragon, he has his chance to get in her life once more. However, will riches and fame make him happy ever after, or will it create more problems? Okay, so I'm guessing this is an animated family film then. What's the animation look like? The animation in this is fine. It's a Chinese-American production. Uh, it doesn't do anything really new. I mean, effectively, this is Aladdin in a different disguise. But it's got a heartfelt spirit to it, and it's quite a joyful film with some great standout moments of comedy. It's a film that you can happily sit with children of any age and enjoy alongside them as they're, they'll be embracing the, the animation style, the look, the feel, the wackiness of the characters, whilst you can embrace the actual heart and the message that is layered within the story. It's, it's a nice surprise from Netflix animations. Netflix and Sony, uh, with their animation releases over the past year, have been pretty good and worth checking out. Maybe not on the DreamWorks or Pixar or Disney level of quality, but worth seeing and definitely something to take a small part of your life out. 
and watch. Now, the other film that I've seen this week landed on Amazon and it's a film that came out at the cinemas last year, very briefly between lockdowns, and that is Kajillionaire. You're addicted to them. They're my parents. In what sense? We split everything three ways. We have since I was little. I don't want to do it that way this time. Don't. So you want us to be false, fake people. We don't make pancakes or wrap up little birthday presents or call you sweetheart or baby. Do a little dance. I always thought it was insulting to treat you like a child. And I thought we agreed on that. We can only ever be how we are. How did I fail? This is the way the big one starts. If you're lucky, you'll get crushed. And then you'll, you'll just die right then and there. I remember seeing the trailer for this, and I, while I was intrigued, I thought the cast looked great and unrecognizable uh, Demi Moore in it. There was something about it that I just, I don't know, some sort of, if I use the word grubbiness, would, would that make sense why I didn't quite, yeah. quite buy into it? Yeah, totally. When I saw the trailer, I didn't quite latch onto it as well for pretty much the same reasons. It was a film, like I said at the start of this, it's a film that saw the box office cut short last year due to lockdowns. Evan Rachel Wood in this plays the 26-year-old daughter of a couple of scammers, and she's been used as the third part of their scams all her life. However, when a new person joins the trio, old Dolio, yes, that's her name, there's a backstory that is contained within the film that makes you laugh, but also makes you feel for the character even more when she's telling it because of where she got the name from. Uh, but old Dolio begins to find something that was missing in her life. The first half hour of the film, I was unsure about it. It's an offbeat approach. It made it almost charmingly funny, but I didn't quite connect. But then it's when Gina Rodriguez's character becomes more ingrained in the world with old Dolio and her mother and father. And we see how it affects old Dolio. That's when the film became something else. Evan Rachel Wood is absolutely magnificent in this. Her insecurities and lack of personality brought on by never really being herself growing up. She's always been used in a scam, and so she hasn't really developed her own personality. And her rising longing to be shown affection from her cold and calculated parents are there in every moment, in every facial expression, from beneath the hanging locks of her, from every slouch of her nature. You can completely see how she's been held away from her life. It's a film that by the end of it, I was well and truly a fan of. And this is one that I plan to revisit further down the line. It's a solidly told tale. It's witty. It's heartfelt. It's emotional. And it really, really does a good job of telling a good story and growing a character from nothing into a potential blossoming flower. Marvellous film. Okay, so there's those that Andy saw, but... We did get the chance to see something together. Uh, Andy had already seen it. Uh, it was a late night preview. It was getting a bit late. I was a bit sleepy. Could I make it through a screening of Nobody? Thankfully, I went because nearly this could be one of the films of the year for me. Andy, set up Nobody and I'll let you know 
my spoiler-free uh, review of it, which I think I've given most of it away already. <laughs> so Bob Odenkirk, who you'll know from Better Call Saul, plays a simple man leading a mundane life of routine, a plain, simple family man. His home life isn't perfect, but when his home is broken into, a spiral of events reveal that there's more to this unassuming figure than people expected, and pretty soon he finds himself the target of the Russian mob. Or is it them who are his target? Hey, I have an idea. How about I make that lasagna that you love tonight? You know, from scratch, like I used to. I used to work for some very dangerous people. They came after my family. They stole my kitty cat bracelet. And you don't do that. Give me the kitty cat bracelet! It's been a hell of a day. Nobody. In many ways, I thought this is a, uh, and, and Derek Colstad, I'll just point out, wrote this, wrote and created uh, uh, the John Wick series. It has a kind of a, an almost a similar story to John Wick. You know, a guy who's, who's sort of hung up his old life uh, and comes back and has to do uh, terrible, terrible violence uh, using as many weapons as, <laughs> as at all possible. And that's where the, the similarity ended because A, Bob Odenkirk is no Keanu Reeves. Uh, and has has a kind of a hangdog expression throughout the film. It is at times ridiculously over the top funny. It has a, a kind of a a charm that just runs through it, even when you're looking at excessive um, ultraviolence. Directed by Ilya Neshula, who, who brought us Hardcore Henry. This is a so much better film than Hardcore Henry. This is just a superb quality B movie that I I walked into not really knowing much about and leaving after having a silly grin on my face for the majority of the film in its in its um quite slight running time of just 90 minutes there's such a lightness of touch to it there's an almost a cartoonish quality uh, and even a lightness to the violence even though it's it's completely over the top i just had a fantastic movie this is what a b movie should be that should just entertain not not out of state's welcome start at the right place finish at the right place it is it is the funnier cousin to, to John Wick. Um, and it's so, so well done. This was the second time for me watching it. And what I appreciated more the second time round was how much it is a character journey. The first 20 minutes, not much happens on screen because we're just getting to know Odenkirk's family man and his mundane life in all its detail. And it's slow paced at that point, but it doesn't feel slow paced. It takes its time to make you care about this person before suddenly flipping it and making you go, whoa, who was he? And then you start to find out more and more about him as it goes through the film and he starts to take his revenge on the people who are slighting him. Whether they slighted him or whether it was just a bit of a mistake, that's left for you to try to decide. But like you say, the action is brutal, but brutally funny at the same time. There's moments that, yeah, Odenkirk's character's getting beaten. And it's the manner in which he just takes the beating and then just stands up and just goes back for it, goes back for more, knowing that he will win in the end. That makes him such a charming character that you latch onto completely. He's absolutely believable in both aspects of the role. He's believable as a simple, plain family man. And he's more than believable as, you know, a trained killer. Who, who could do really nice things? Thought it, let's be honest. Who would have thought he could switch gears like that um, it, with such ease as yeah, well? He, he proper flips from one side of personality to the other, and the family man aspect gives that heart 
behind the whole thing. It gives that that was the thing that he always wanted. And you see him starting to lose the grip on the family aspect and what it means to him to lose that grip. And that gives the heart to it, as well as family aspect of his wife and kid. You've also got the marvellous family aspect of the casting of Christopher Lloyd as his father in the film, who I've not seen Christopher Lloyd on film for so long. And I want to see him in more films now because he steals every moment on screen that he's on. He's such a uh, he's such a dependable screen presence in every every scene that he's in. He's only in a few. He 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 makes it work as a payoff for it. You know, this is this is one of those films that as soon as it finished, I wish I had it on Blu-ray so I could go home and watch it again. I enjoyed it that much. It was just a, a, a great. A, a great B movie. It's 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 not high art. It's uh, it doesn't bring anything new to the action. Uh, you know, it has a, a strange cartoonish quality to it. It was just so damn enjoyable, and uh, I can't wait. Honestly, can't wait to see it again. There's all that violence, and it, it, there's humour, there's style, and there's a cute kitten as well. <laughs> what more can you ask for from a film? And that's nobody playing at your local cinema right now. Please. Please go. Not now. Listen to the listen. Listen to the rest of the show first. Go after the end of the show. <laughs> so we did it for one division. We came back and did it for Falcon and Winter Soldier, and we're going to do it with Loki. Every week, we're going to give you a very brief rundown on our thoughts of the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe TV series right here on Disney Plus. And as we said just before we're about to start recording, it's kind of thrown us by. Um, opening on a Wednesday because we're ready now for episode two. So you're going to be slightly ahead of the game uh, in a way that, that we could be ahead of the game ourselves with uh, the previous outings. It landed last Wednesday. Uh, so after disappearing with the Tesseract after the Battle of New York, Loki again, and of course only could be played by Tom Hiddleston, is picked up by the timeline monitors known as the Time Variance Authority, the TVA. As someone who is an unauthorized variant who threatens the sacred timeline of reality, he meets up with sympathetic agent Mobius M. Mobius, played with, of course, the charm that one would expect from Owen Wilson, but in a slightly more character-driven way, and saves him from execution to investigate a bigger threat. Andy, uh, an interesting place to start with this one. I, I read a review that said this was almost like issue zero of an ongoing comic book. And that made me think of two other things, which I'll go back and address. But for an opening pilot episode, for want of a better term, this was very surprisingly exposition-y and uh, almost like um, a clip show to start off the start of, of Loki's adventures. Yeah, I mean, it kind of had to be in a way because picking up from the events of Endgame, this is not the Loki that we've seen grow and develop over the MCU. This was the Loki from the first Avengers film who had not redeemed himself and become a semi-hero. This was still the one who wanted power. So when he escapes in Endgame into the timelines and then gets picked up by the Times Variance Authority, he needs to change his character because he's egotistical in this at the start of this. He's still looking down on people and referring to how he's a god and he shouldn't be treated like this. But it takes the clip show aspect of where you get to see events from the previous films that he wasn't a part of for him to see him to see what other people thought of him. Because Loki has always booked against people because he thought that he was the outsider. He thought that no one wanted him. He was abandoned. He was mistrusted. But he gets to 
He gets to have that plot development and growth of character that the MCU films did to him over a series of appearances in a five-minute sequence of him just watching to see how those events played out after he was taken away from the timeline. And I thought that was clever. I thought that was needed because you needed to bring this to be similar to the character that Loki was towards the end of, towards Thor Ragnarok, for example. He needed to be that character again. And he wasn't at the start of it. So yes, it's an issue zero. It's a setting up. It's a throwing in the exposition, introducing characters, introducing the themes. And there's a lot of themes to introduce, but there's also a lot to one pick at the same time. Yeah, I mean, we we got clips from Ragnarok, Infinity War, uh, Dark World, all that, that sort of showed the way that, as you said, Loki's character developed. And I guess what they had to do, because otherwise I don't think there would be a series because of this, they had to they had to crack him to see what for him to examine what his life turned out to be and where it was at and they they showed him at his most vulnerable and and we saw glimpses of that vulnerability that that Loki had not had not yet endured and witnessed uh, and um, it was very very telling um, it, it was very talky I kind of walked away not sure where the series could go because I think at this stage it could go anywhere it certainly. It certainly was a bold move to to do a series like this. If you think of uh, of One Division, we were thrown into this world and we had to unpick it. Um, now we're waiting for the series to unpick itself and, and unravel into whatever it's going to be. We know that he's hunting down a version of himself, mm-hmm. a, a version of a Loki uh, who is uh, uh, running free and and causing well, not just chaos but havoc and, and murder in the timeline and. Um, it, it's a kind of an interesting start, but it it also reminded me, and this is what the kind of the TV version of the MCU is about, is you've got your your, your big standalone movies. And, and just like comics, these are limited series where you would explore side characters and, you know, limited series of, I remember there was a Vision and, and Scarlet Witch one. You know, there was a, a Hawkeye one, you know, where you would explore characters over six issues. And it, and it reminded me of that. You've got your big guns, you yeah, yeah, ongoing series, and then you've got your limited series, and it, it sort of feels that there is a closer connection to the comics than than we actually realised. Some interesting notes are kind of hinted at with this first episode, where we learned that the TVA correct fractured timelines; they, they they stop a multiverse from happening by every time that something could cause a splinter, they manage to merge it back together. Which means, I've said uh, since the end of Endgame that um, Captain America. When Steve Rogers went backwards in time and spent his life with Peggy, I've said he would have been the mysterious husband that she was married to that she mentioned in the first Avengers film. And I was dismissed by so many people who says, no, it's a different timeline. Well, now we know that the TVA would have fixed the timeline. Guess what? Who was right? It was me. Um, <laughs> I love being right. You know what? And I thought that, I thought that was an, a really interesting point because in the first couple of minutes, they established that the Avengers timeline was what was supposed to happen. Yep, they were supposed to meddle with time, with the TVA clearly going behind them to correct things again behind them and stop the threads from dangling off. Um, it's also interesting to note that if the TVA are this meticulous about correcting timelines, we know that Doctor Strange is entering the multiverse of madness. So is something going to happen over this series that is going to fracture the timelines in such a way that the TVA can no longer fix it? And that... That's yeah. what makes me so interested to see 
how this series goes. Um, <clears throat> there was a nice little nod to Mephisto with the stained glass window, which I think was a great little joke. Either that or it's Mephisto. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> it just went when it panned up to the window and I was like, that looks like Mephisto. Oh, they're doing this on purpose. I know they're doing this on purpose. But I, I loved it. I loved the wit of it. I loved Owen Wilson. I think that he was absolutely fantastic as Mobius and Mobius. His whimsical approach and like to roles works so well for this agent. I loved, I, I just loved the setting. I loved laughing along as Loki's presented with a script of all his li- lines that he said throughout his life for him to sign. And then as he questions it, another sheet of paper prints out and it's put on top and that, and that. Brilliant. I, it's a great teaser opening episode. However, it is worth noting that unlike the other MCU shows so far, I do feel that this one needs you to have watched the MCU films in order to have latched yeah. onto it. The other ones, you could quite easily approach them as individual series and not know much about the characters because it tells you enough. This, I think it relies so heavily on the MCU. This is what they meant when they said that Loki is going to be core to the MCU films more than those other two shows were. Well, we'll be back next week to talk about episode two. Don't let my sort of negativity put you off. It's an intriguing show. I'm not negative, honestly. I those are just my my initial thoughts on it. I'm I'm going to be sticking around. I'm not saying at any point that I didn't enjoy it, but uh, there was just a sort of a cynical eye cast over it. But we'll be back to talk about episode two next week. So before we round up this week, what's coming up at your local cinema this week? It's quite a busy week for fans of film. We've got The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, which is already showing in cinemas, thanks for advanced previews. We've got In the Heights, which we will be talking about next week. There's In the Earth, which is Ben Wheatley's latest low-budget horror that he filmed during lockdown. And there's also Paul W.S. Anderson's Monster Hunter. Again, we will talk about this one next week. Um, on the streaming services this week, on Now TV and Sky... Where'd You Go Bernadette? We spoke about Richard Linklater earlier on. This is a film which he's directed from 2019, starring Kate Blanchett and Billy Crudup, which sees a loving mother who's always put family first have to decide one day to take matters in her own hands and break free. And there's also a film called 12 Hour Shift. A drug-addicted nurse and her crazed cousin try to find a replacement kidney for an organ trafficker, and soon the bodies start piling up. On Netflix, Fatherhood, sees Kevin Hart as a widowed new dad who sets out to raise his daughter on his own. And over on Disney+, Plus, Luca, Pixar's latest animated release, is doing great with critics. And whilst it's the saying that it's pretty generic, it's full of that Pixar charm that you've come to expect. And it lands free of charge on the service this weekend. That's about it for this week. But of course, before we go, we offer you our neat things. Yes, things that we've done, seen, watched, uh, listen to whatever played, you name it, whatever we've enjoyed is our neat thing. Andy, tell me what your neat thing is for the last week. So my neat thing is something that has been kind of on the borderline of being a neat thing for quite a while now. And I do use this quite frequently when I'm sat on my computer whilst I'm doing other things. Over on Twitter, there's an account called What The Shot, which is at What The Shot, all one word. And all that it is, it's a, a bot run question about films. It posts out every 10 minutes, one frame from a film, and you have to guess the film or the director. It'll tell you like which, which director made this film from such and such a year, or what is this film made by this person? And you t- 
You do a reply, type your answer, and it scores you on it. It scores you whether you're correct. And if you get the fastest score, you get more points. And it, it's a continuous thing. It's not set on a Monday. It's not set on a Tuesday. It goes on forever. You have five minutes in which to answer each of them. If no one answers correctly within the first two minutes, it prompts another clue. So it'll put some of the title for pointing in the right direction, or it will say this starred such and such a person. And it's such an addiction. Once I, I fell down the rabbit hole of this on one day when I was just laying on the couch, sat there for six hours answering question after question after question. If you're a fan of films, follow What the Shot and just answer every now and then because then you can follow to the website, which the link is on their Twitter profile, to go and see what your score is and how you rank that day, that week or all time. You can also challenge your mates with it. You know, set a time that you want to start playing. And over the course of that day, who's going to score the most out of the two, out, out two, three, four, or whatever of you? It's a great bit of fun. I have so much fun while, like I say, while I'm sat doing other things on my computer, I'll have Twitter running in the background. And every time one pops up, I'll be like, I know that one, try and answer. And there's one guy who always beats me by 0.02 of a second with the answers. And I'm determined to beat him. I am going to beat him one day and I will be screenshotting that and publicizing it everywhere. But it's so much fun. What the shot on Twitter? Um, my neat thing is, is has a bit of a story to it. So um, I'm expecting a new passport through. I get an email that I sort of glance through saying uh, there will be a courier coming uh, such and such a time. Please be in. Anyway, I couldn't be in. Got home. There was a card. Says the courier will come back tomorrow. Then I get an email saying your courier is coming in. This is now Saturday morning saying it's coming between 10 and 11. And I looked at what the, the details were, and it said it was from Jimmy Garcia Catering. I had no idea what that is. Checked out what Jimmy Garcia Catering is, and it's a sort of events company that provide meals and food for, for various events, very upmarket-looking events. I was still intrigued. The courier arrived at just five minutes past 10 with a huge box. I called down my missus to come down to examine said box. We opened said box and realised... We'd won. Well, in fact, I'd won. I'd entered into <laughs> not not actually remembering a prize draw from Virgin about BAFTAs 2021, where I had to name a certain amount of films uh, that would win the BAFTA. Anyway, I was a, I was a winner. I'd never really ever win anything. <laughs> I was really overcome. I won a bottle of uh, Tattinger champagne, which I'm a big champagne meal kit for two, which included a starter, a main course, a dessert provided by Jimmy Garcia catering worth 85 quid and a Virgin Media Store voucher worth 13.99. Everything that came in this is you created your meal. There was instructions how to do it, which had a lovely sort of sense of humor. Fantastic presentation box, uh, a lovely bottle of champers uh, with um, details on how to mix to make cocktails with it. And we had a fantastic night. If you uh, want to check out the fantastic night, I'm going to send Andy uh, the photo so he can put it on our Instagram account. Uh, as we uh, recreated a red carpet in our garden just to get into the mood of things. But it was a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, win. Great meal. Unfortunately, the missus couldn't have any because she's vegan, but it was rather, rather delicious food. And um, yes, that was my neat thing. The BAFTA 2021 prize draw and my food hamper. And I'm still smiling about it now. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. I'll send you the photos. You can have take a look on our Instagram account. And that's it for this week. We'll be back with another film file next week. But before we go, are you cool, man? Are you cool, man?